Good to see you this morning. Uh, we are glad that you're hanging out with us. If you are new to Stone Point, uh, as we uh, mentioned earlier, uh, but you might have missed, uh, hey, we're glad that you're here and uh, pray that today is encouraging uh, to your heart. Uh, but one of the things that we also want to encourage you in was a free gift card, and we uh, happen to want to give away Chick-fil-A to you, a first-time guest. And so if you're here, if nothing else encourages your heart, we know chicken does, right? Um, and so you can actually meet us. Uh, we would love to, to get to know you, put a face with a name, be able to pray for you if that encourages your heart, uh, hear a little bit about your story. Uh, we're not going to show up at your house, do something weird or awkward. We just want to help you connect uh, to the local body, an expression of faith who loves Jesus, and we want to help you do the same. Uh, if you are... Uh, here and you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 11. If you're new, we have been walking through uh, the book of Romans uh, systematically uh, for what seems like three years. Um, and we're, we're going to finish up sometime in 2022, I promise. Uh, but if you have your Bible, Romans chapter 11, let me just kind of recap real quickly. Last week, we talked about Elijah's syndrome. Uh, Paul was talking to the church of Rome, and he says, it feels like we might be uh, in some ways alone, but he says, just be reminded of Elijah. You remember Elijah when he went to Mount Carmel and he faced 450 prophets of Baal and he won. You saw God bring fire down from heaven and he was so excited. And then in the night he got a text from Jezebel that said, I'm going to hunt you down. And then he runs and he hides in a cave and God goes, what in the world are you doing, Elijah? And Elijah said, listen, I'm, I'm alone. I'm the only one left. I'm by myself. And then God says, no, there's 7,000 others who have not kissed um, the, the, the statues of Baal, and they have not bended their knee to the prophets, of, uh, to, to the gods of Baal. So he says, you are not alone. And Paul's point to the church uh, in Israel and to the Romans was, hey, you and I are a remnant. We're not alone. There is still something left, even though as a whole, the nation of Israel has rejected God and namely rejected his son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so Paul is building on that idea, and he's going to use a couple of terms today. One, he's going to talk about dough, which is what we use for bread, but he's going to use another one that's called grafting. Now, you may be here, and you're like, I don't cook, and I don't do gardening. Well, let me just help you then. Um, in our marriage, Kelly and I, we've been married 20 years this month. Okay, go ahead and clap. If, if, yeah. I'm excited about that, mostly because we're getting away for a few days to be together, and it's going to be awesome. I'm going to turn off my phone, and I'm not going to listen to anything else in the world. I'm just going to stare into my wife's eyes. Isn't that going to be wonderful? She's like, this is going to be awesome. I bet she's excited about that. But over the course of the 20 years, uh, Kelly and I have remodeled several houses. Um, it was just something that we kind of got into early in our marriage, namely because the first house we bought was like garbage and we had to figure out how to, to like get it to be in a place we could live in and we had people come alongside of us and teach us things and one of the things that we realized quickly after we got our house remodeled is like it had no curb appeal and so it needed a little landscape so we'd go and we'd buy a landscape and basically what she would do is buy and then I would dig holes that's how it worked and so uh, we would we would do that but over time, we became more intrigued with plants and learning horticulture and all these different things. And so we would remodel houses. And uh, over the course of the last 20 years, we've lived in like 11 different houses. Um, and we've just done a little bit. And we just actually moved in last weekend to a new place. And so we're already thinking like, okay, what, what's next? And we're thinking about how we have curb appeal and buying plants and all that. And what we're doing is, is like we're, we're buying plants and we've learned a lot about them and ones we like and don't like. And then we've even over 
the course of time, like even to think like, hey, save money, what you can do is propagate your own plants. And so you would cut off and then you would grow roots, then you plant it and, and you, like, you can do different things. The one thing we've never done, although I'm excited to try soon, is grafting. Now, grafting is taking a single plant. Let's use rose as an example. So you have this beautiful red rose bush. To graft a rose, what you would do is you would take one from a white rose bush and you would cut off the stem at the proper place. Uh, you might dip it in honey or there's some other things. And then what you're going to do is you're going to come back over to the red rose and at a particular place, you're going you're gonna to cut or etch a little place. And then you're going to take the white rose and you're going to put the stem in the red rose. And then you're going to tape it up and you're going to graft it in. And if it takes, then what you're going to have is now a red rose with a white rose. And you can add pink roses and yellow roses. At the end of the day, like you get really good at grafting. You can have this really cool rose bush that has like four different assortments of roses. It's the same red root, but it's got lots of different stems all grafted in to the original root. That makes sense? And so that's how you do that. And it can be a difficult process because you're like, oh, that seems impossible. But Paul is about to use this analogy of grafting as he talks about Rome, um, the, the Israel as a whole, and then he's going to talk about this other group of people called the Gentiles. Now, real quickly, let me just sum it up for you because maybe you're not clear. A Jew is from the nation of Israel. That was God's chosen people. Um, they did reject the Messiah. And so God also brought about another group of people called the Gentiles. Now, real quickly, if you are not a Jew, you are a Gentile. So everybody on three, we're going to say Gentile together. One, two, three, Gentile. Okay, so real quick, quick test. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Okay, so let's raise our hands if you are a Gentile. Go ahead, raise your hand. Okay. Okay, there were a few people not participating, so we're going to try it one more time. And I, I wanted to try it, but not because you weren't participating, because I thought it might be confusing. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. So raise your hand if you're a Gentile. Okay, now here's why this matters. Paul is going to talk about the Jew and what it means for the Gentile. He goes, the Jew, if you look in verse 11, he says, stumbled. And he asks a rhetorical question as he talks about this idea of stumbling. In verse 11, he says, so I ask, did they, meaning Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? And then he answers his own question. He goes, by no means. So what he said is, is it possible that somebody stumbles and then catches themselves and not, doesn't fall? He goes, yes, that's possible. He goes, what Israel did is he said they stumbled. Now, what did they stumble on? We know from previous chapters, they stumbled on the rock of offense. They stumbled on Jesus Christ. He was the one that the Jews stumbled upon. And so when they stumbled, he says, it doesn't mean that they fell, but he says they did indeed stumble. And you might ask the question, well, why did they stumble? Why did they have such a difficult time with Jesus? Paul answers his question. He goes, they didn't stumble so they would fall. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Who? The Gentiles. Salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So what we see is, is Paul says, look, the reason in Israel stumbling, the gospel goes forth, is so that the Gentile might actually know Christ and his kindness. So God says, in my loving kindness, Israel rejected. They stumbled over Jesus the Messiah. And now 
God in his loving kindness and his abounding faithfulness and his steadfast love to thousands of generations who love him, he says, I have made myself known to Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. So that the purpose of a Gentile coming to salvation in Christ, he uses the word jealous. That word jealous is the word prosaloo, which literally means to provoke one to jealousy. Now, let's do a throwback. You remember back when you were a kid? Uh, maybe some of you are still kids. Uh, back when you were a kid, you had maybe a girlfriend or a boyfriend. We call them the significant other. And then, like, you approach Valentine's Day, and you're like, you're getting a gift for your significant other, and they're supposed to be getting a gift for you, and all of a sudden you realize that on Valentine's Day that you got a gift for them, but they didn't get a gift for you. And then you have a broken heart because they say, hey, listen, we're not going to be an item anymore. We're not going to be a thing. And then like you're sad, but all of a sudden your sadness goes to like this crazy revenge. Okay? And the crazy revenge means, well, I'm going to get another significant other because I would desire to make them jealous. And it doesn't necessarily mean who the significant other is, and which is kind of a little bit tricky or a little bit crazy because you might get a significant other for some other reason. I don't want to run the Sonic the Hedgehog movie too, but you see that there is a person in there that gets a significant other for the wrong reasons, okay? Well, in this particular case, you are jealous because this person broke it off with you, and so you go, I'm going to go get another significant other, regardless of who they are, to make one jealous. And the the crazy thing about that, the twisted thing about our jealousy in that case, is that it's all centered around who? Us. But what's interesting is is that when Paul uses this idea to provoke one to jealousy, he's not centering it around God himself in the sense that God is doing it for the wrong benefit. So he says he has brought salvation to the Gentiles as to make Israel jealous in this sense that that Israel would actually return back to their one true love. It is for Israel's benefit not for their demise. So when we think about jealousy in our craziness, we do something that's self-serving, centered around us to make one jealous. That's not what Paul's talking about. God says that he is using Israel, uh, or the Gentile in this day and age, to bring about the jealousy of Israel so that Israel would return to God. It would be a benefit, a blessing to Israel, not the different. And that's the key. He goes on in verse 12. He says, Now if their trespass, meaning Israel, means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So he goes, do you realize what's happened? He goes, when the Jews stumbled upon Jesus and they rejected him as Messiah, the gospel went forth to the Gentile. The Gentile now has the means of salvation by God's grace through faith in the Son, Jesus Christ. And your relationship to Jesus should actually bring about the jealousy of a Jew in which they would return. And he goes, now, what's crazy about that, he goes, even now, their trespass, meaning Israel's stumbling, their trespass brings riches to you. You and I are enjoying the riches of God's blessings through Jesus Christ. Their failure is a blessing to us. So Paul then makes the question, and he goes, what would it look like if we were a benefactor of Israel's true fulfillment and their true inclusion? 
So he goes, what would it look like if Israel is benefiting from God the way they were intended to? He goes, how much would that bless the nations? See, if you go do a throwback, you realize that when Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, God made a promise to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make your nation great. I'm going to give you a name. I'm going to give you people. I'm going to give you blessing. He goes, and you are going to bless the nations. The point of Israel was that God would show his faithfulness and kindness and his steadfast love to them in such a way that they would benefit from God and as benefactors of God that they would be a blessing to all the nations. The problem was they stumbled upon God's greatest blessing, which was his son Jesus. But could you imagine what it would look like for Israel to be devoted to God in a way in which they received Jesus as king? Not just as a remnant, not just a group of them, but the whole nation. What would that have done? It would have blessed all the earth. So he says, what would it look like if you realize that one day God is going to bring about the fulfillment of Israel and they're going to have a full inclusion? That's going to happen. He says, that's, that's in the future. But he says, could you imagine what that looks like, that the fullness comes? What is fullness? It's complete. It lacks nothing. That's the idea. Verse 13, he says, now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Okay, now remind yourself, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile, this would have been a really good time for you to pay attention if you were in Rome and you were receiving the letter. And we can even pay attention now because even though we weren't the ones who were recipients of the letter personally, we can still learn much from what Paul's saying. He says, listen, Gentiles, I'm speaking to you. Listen, pay attention. Come out of your slumber, wake up, make sure you're paying attention. He says, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus Save some of them. So Paul, listen, he goes, the reason that I am doing ministry, the reason I am a suffering servant for the cause of Christ is to make my ministry impactful. And he goes, and I am serving the Gentiles because the Jews have stumbled upon Jesus. They've rejected him. So the message goes forth. And he goes, and I'll go on missionary journey after missionary journey, after missionary journey. He goes, I would, I'll go to Philippi. I'll go to Macedonia. I don't have a problem going to Ephesus or, or I don't mind being there in Rome if I could be there. I would love to be in Rome. I would love to do whatever it would mean that the gospel, the good news of Jesus would go forth to the whole world so that, he goes, even God would use my ministry, even my speaking, my proclaiming that some of the Jews, a handful of my brothers and sisters would come out from their slumber, and they would acknowledge that Christ is Savior. So Paul goes, I magnify my ministry in that. Now here's the point, what Paul is saying, he goes, I share the gospel, I'm a messenger of reconciliation for the cause, not just of the Gentiles, but even that God would use my ministry to save some of the Jews while we still can. Which, what is the point? What is Paul saying here? Paul is, Paul is saying that one, Israel continues to reject Jesus, and two, it matters that the Gentiles are a part of what God has to offer. But then there's a second thing, and I'll show that to you in a second. But look what Paul does in Acts chapter 18. Um, you can turn your Bibles there if you'd like and hold your place. Uh, that would just be going backwards a book. Um, and if you don't, that's okay. We'll put it for you up the screen. But in Acts chapter 18, uh, really verses 5 and 6, we're only going to put 6 up for the screen. Paul and Silas and Timothy are going to Macedonia. They get there, and they're testifying to the Jews that Christ is indeed Jesus, that he is the Messiah. 
In verse 6, it says, And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So Paul goes to Macedonia, goes to the synagogue, proclaims and preaches Christ. They reject, and he goes, Well, blood's on your own hands. And he goes, And because you will not partake of what I have to offer, he goes, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles will listen. What's so cool about that, you continue to read the story. He goes to um, a, a house next door. A guy named Titius Justus comes to faith in Christ. Eventually, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, comes to Christ as well. But Paul goes, listen, if the, if the Jew's not going to listen, then he goes, I'll make it my mission to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And if the Gentiles do listen, he goes, we know it's for Israel's benefit. Does that make sense? Which then begs the question, what about your life? What about my life? If God is ultimately using our lives, our people, the Gentiles who have received the gospel to bring about jealousy of the Jew, how would a Jew become jealous unless a Christian or a Christ follower is all that Christ desired for us to be? And the question I would ask you is this, would any Jew who denies the person, the work of Jesus Christ, be jealous over the way you live your life for Jesus Christ? Is there anything so attractive about the things you know about Jesus? Is there any way that you live that, that shapes your heart and your mind and, and your character in such a way that even a Jew would become jealous? I think about Paul and his writing to the church of Corinth when he says in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That is the picture that Paul says here. And I think oftentimes we as Believers in Christ, we, we oftentimes ask ourselves the wrong question. I think a lot of times we center our lives around the question of what shall we do? Hey, where am I supposed to work? And what am I supposed to do? What, God, what do you want from me next? And I think oftentimes we ask ourselves time and time and time again questions around this idea centered on what shall we do? But can I just tell you, I think oftentimes we're framing the wrong question. Because the question should never be centered around what should you do, but about who you should be. Because when you determine who it is that you should be, everything that you do flows out of who you should be. So who are you to be? You're to be imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, can you be an imitator in education? Absolutely. Can you be an imitator as you fabricate metal? Yes. Can you be an imitator as you pour concrete? Absolutely. Can you be uh, an imitator as you uh, are a pilot over planes or you're a steward of anything that God gives you? Yes, the, the reality is, is that God is using who we are to be to form what we should do. And that's Paul's point. He goes, Gentile, if you receive the loving kindness and the richness of God's grace and his mercy in your life, he goes, may it change your heart in such a way that you, who you are, is a reflection of the goodness of God, a mirror of his goodness, shows a world in need who Jesus is. Not just your Gentile brother or sister, but also the Jew. So that would be the question, who are you to be? What is it that God desires for you to be? He desires that you would be his handiwork. Ephesians 2.10, that you have been created by Christ to do good works and which he has called in advance for you to do. So how do you do those things? Well, it's because you know who you are. It's who he's created you to be. In the image of Christ. The imago Deo, the, the image of God's wonder in your life moves you to be and do what he's called you to do. So verse 15 answers that question. 
So for if their rejection, meaning the Jew, right? If their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? He goes, if Israel's rejection of Jesus has sent the gospel forth to the Gentile, you and I, and we've received God's goodness because they rejected and killed Jesus and they stumbled on him as a rock of offense, he goes, hey, what would it mean in their acceptance? He goes, that would be life from the dead, right? It would be like a resurrection too but it would be a resurrection of a nation. He goes, what would it look like if the resurrection of a nation transpired? What would it look like if all the Jews right now, currently living in New York, which are more there than in Israel probably right now, what would it look like if because of the faithfulness of American Christians and Christ followers, Jews came to know Christ in such a way that the nation of Israel was changed? Paul's point is, could you know what that means? Because listen, friends, I want you to know that based off of the Scripture, when the nation of Israel returns and they love God wholeheartedly the way they should, that means that we will be seeing heaven dawn. It is, it is there. It is in the fulfillment and the final times of the Scripture that when Israel returns to God, when the nation is resurrected, when they wholeheartedly come back to him, that we know that God is ruling and reigning and he will forevermore. So what does it mean for us? It means until that day, we are to be a blessing to the nations, that as Gentiles, our life matters. What do you mean our life matters? You mean to tell me that if I live in Wills Point or in Myrtle Springs or I live in Point, Texas, or if I live in Edgewood or if I come from Maybank area, you mean to tell me that from Elmo or from Terrell area that my life matters? Absolutely your life matters. Why does your life matter? Because I want you to think beyond just us. Think about what... God is doing throughout the earth that if you never even leave the states, that your life as a witness, you, your life as a city on the hill, as light for others to see, matters. Why? Because people are looking and they are watching and they are waiting for something special about you. And when they see it, then they see the goodness of God in you. When they see the goodness of God in you, it manifests something in them that they can be all that God desires for them to be. And when they're all that God desires for them to be, gospel goes forth. And you may not take it to the Sudan but someone will. And is it a result of your faithfulness? And you may not take it to Palestine, but maybe you will take it to New York. Or maybe you'll take it to one of the handful of Jews living to our area. And maybe they'll see the goodness of God in you. And maybe it'll be bringing God's grand plan to the nations. Do you see your life matters? Faithfulness matters. Your life set apart, consecrated for Christ matters. It matters. It matters what you do here and in Vegas. Because it doesn't just stay in Vegas, right? That's Paul's message. And then he, he does this, swat, this slight twist here. This is where it can get a little confusing, so lean in with me, and we're going to kind of wrap it up. He's going to talk about dough and grafting. Y'all remember dough is how bread starts? Yes? Y'all remember grafting what it is? Okay, here's what he says. He says, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the, the whole lump. So he goes, if you begin with the dough and the dough is good, then it's good, okay? So let me just put it on a, a way that all of our teenagers and kiddos can understand, okay? If you have a batch of brownie mix and it doesn't have dog poop in it, it's good. <laughs> Got me? Yes? A little bitty piece of dog poop in your brownie mix, 
Does it run a, just a little bit, run a little bit of the bats? Or how many of you are like, no, it runs, it runs the whole thing. Yes? Okay, so I, look, I've been hanging out with teenagers on Wednesday nights, and I, like, I just have to give you some teenage lingo, okay? That's, that's how we get teenagers. That's the example. So a little bit of poop in the dough goes bad, right? It's no go for us. So what Paul says, he goes, listen, there was nothing wrong with the dough. Nothing wrong with the dough. You got it? Okay, it's going to take a little while to get the adults back. Like kids are already, we're already back and moving, but all you adults are like, oh man, I can't get back on track. He says, and look, he says the latter part of 16, if the root is holy, so are the branches. So he goes, if the dough's good and the root is good, he goes, we're good. So you ask, well, what's the dough and what's the root? He says, the patriarchs, the original plan. When God went to Abraham and then ultimately to Isaac and to Jacob, he goes, it was good. What God had established with the forefathers, with the patriarchs was good. He goes, the remnant of Israel is good. He goes, you can look at the prophets and it was good. He goes, you can look at the 7,000 in Elijah's day and it was good. There was nothing wrong with the dough. There was nothing wrong with the root. It was fine. So he goes, that's what you have to establish. But he says this in verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. He goes, if you have a good dough and you have a good root, then he goes, from there we have something to work with. So what he does then is he gives this expression. He goes, imagine that there's two plants. He goes, there's one right here that's an olive tree and it's got a solid root and it's been pruned and it's, it's budding and it's blooming and it's, it's producing olives. It's fruitful. He goes, now suppose that over here, just right across the way, you have another olive tree, but it looks like a bush, not a tree. Nobody's ever pruned it. It's, it's kind of wild. It's, it's, it, it doesn't even bear a whole lot of fruit because in order to, to produce a lot of olives, you've got you've to prune it and cut it. It's one of those trees that takes care and concern. And he goes, so you've got these two trees. He goes, you've got one that's got a really good root and it's been pruned and cared for. He goes, you've got another one that's wild. It's got offshoots everywhere. He goes, now suppose, and this is what his question is, suppose that you, although wild as an olive shoot, suppose that God grafted you in. So you were cut out of the wild tree, the one who as a Gentile were foolish, estranged, alienated. And he goes, suppose that he took one of those wild ones, cut it off, and then through careful placement, he grafted you in to the one who was good. He goes, that's what God has done for you. He goes, you were wild. You didn't come up with this plan on your own. God cut off a branch of the wild one and he placed you in the one that's good. He grafted you in through careful precision, through his loving kindness, through his sovereignty, through his grand plan, God brought forth hope to the nations. The Gentiles reject him. So God uses people like Paul to bring about the gospel, the good news, the kindness of God to the nations and it spreads. It spreads through early persecution of the church and it has gone forth. And for the last couple thousand years, God has been grafting in Gentiles, you and me, into his original plan, into the system that had good dough and good roots. Make sense? He then says this in verse 18. So don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So he goes, be careful that you don't now look at Israel and go, well, look at us. 
Who are you? And I think oftentimes the church can, and oftentimes even as we read our Bible, we can become a little bit haughty and proud towards Israel. We can go, what in the world were they thinking? How in the world, how blind do you have to be to not see the Messiah? He's been spoken about from the beginning of time. Even in Genesis chapter 3, we know he's going to come from woman. We see all the signs. I'm like, it's super clear. How in the world were they so dumb to miss it? And if he goes, just be careful. Be careful to know that if God didn't open your eyes, you wouldn't have seen either. If God didn't bring you forth from the dead, he goes, you would still be dead. God brought in his kindness towards you as an opportunity to be a part of the first fruits. He goes, he brought you into the lump of dough. He brought you into the solid root system. So he goes, the only reason that you have the gospel is because of God. So just be careful not to be arrogant towards your other branches. And I would suppose to say that that means not just the Jewish branches, but also the Gentile branches. Because just be careful that you don't become haughty or proud or believe that somehow you have done something in your own righteousness to believe that you have merit from God. He goes, just remind yourself that you are unrighteous and God is holy and he sought fit in his goodness and his kindness to give you salvation. He goes, so just put that in its proper place. He goes on in verse 19, he says, so then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. He goes, that's true. So he goes, but you might even make the argument. He goes, well, why should I not be haughty or proud? God actually broke off branches from Israel because they were unfaithful. And then when he did that, he put me in their place. He goes, yeah, you could say that. that I mean, he goes, I suppose that's true. But he says, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. So he goes, the reason you're grafted in is because of your belief. They were cut out because of their unbelief. So he goes, if, if you would say that you're grafted in because of your belief, he goes, your belief should lead you to what? Something, fear. The Proverbs tell us that the beginning of fear is wisdom. So we would see Proverbs 28, 14 say this, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. The prophet Jeremiah said this in chapter 44, verse 10. He says, They have not humbled themselves even to this day, nor have they feared, nor have they walked in my law and my statutes that I set before you and before your fathers. He gives you a contrast. He goes, the people of Israel hardened their hearts. And he goes, but blessed are those who fear the Lord. Blessed are those who know where life and wisdom come from. Blessed are those whose dependence is not in and of themselves as a branch, but in the root. Blessed are those who realize that in order to have yellow, pink, purple, white roses, it all depends on a healthy root. That if you're grafted in, it has nothing to do with you because a graft does not stabilize the root. Instead, the root stabilizes the graft. That's the point. And that's what Paul is making so clear. So he says this, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. So he goes, hey, the reason you don't want to get too prideful is he goes, look what God did with Israel. He goes, is God not in a place of sovereignty or power or position that he could do whatever he wanted with the Gentiles as well? He goes, just be careful. That's this point. Verse 22, he says, note then the kindness, which is the mercy of God, and the severity, which is the justice of God, Toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Now, this isn't a salvific thing, I don't think. I think what he's saying is, he goes, just remind yourself that if Israel was cut off by the, the justice of God, he goes, remember God's kindness to you. What is God's kindness to you? 
Have you ever thought about that? And you would say, well, God's kindness to me is salvation. And I would say, absolutely, with all certainty, God's kindness is salvation. But can I tell you, that's not where God's kindness stops. God's greatest kindness to you, I think, is found in John chapter 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. I'm the root, is there another way you could think about it, and you have been grafted in. He goes, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, he says, you can do nothing. He goes, without the root, the graft doesn't take place. Which even more than that, if we realize what this text is talking about, that the Gentiles should live faithful lives among even the Jews today, the question is, how do you do that apart from Jesus Christ? And even more than that, let me take it another step. How do you do that without a faithful dependence upon Christ daily? See, I think oftentimes the Christian is so focused about who or, or what they should do rather than who they should be. Can I tell you the greatest thing you can be is an expression of fruitfulness to your husband or to your wife or to your kids or your coworkers because you have met, experienced, and enjoyed a relationship that's deep and abiding with Jesus Christ, and it happens daily. 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 Daily walking with Jesus. And he goes, why? Because he goes, if God is okay with pruning natural branches, he goes, you don't think he'll prune you if you don't bear fruit? Matter of fact, John chapter 15 is a great example of that. He goes, what does he do with branches that don't bear fruit? He goes, he tosses them in the fire. Now, I don't think it's a salvific thing. I think what he's saying is he goes, listen, Christians, those who are Christ followers, he says, they exhibit fruitfulness. And fruitfulness does not come from you. It never comes from you. It never comes from your own power. It never comes from your own position. It never comes from your own ability to be smart or wise or crafty. It always comes from the root. That's the point. You cannot ever graft without a root. Make sense? Have I hammered that point far enough? Good. That's why Leon Morris says it this way. He says, we should not understand this to mean that the believer can stop himself from falling away from grace by his own unaided effort. Paul is not saying if you continue to merit his kindness, that there is humble security that leans constantly on the kindness of God. And there is a proud self-dependence that scorns any need of help. He goes, it is the latter against which Paul is warning. He says, there is no place for smug complacency. There is no place in the Christian life for coasting. There is no place in the Christian life for saying, I'll, I'll get back on track soon. There's no place for that. And to also know that you and I are not merely walking our Christian faith because we want to oblige God or in some ways earn his approval. Friends, there is nothing more to earn from a God who's given you this phrase in Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the reason that you and I want to be sustained by the root is so that we would bear fruit and that we would be all that God desires us to be in his expression to both our Gentile brothers and sisters and also our Jewish brothers and sisters. And so he then finishes this kind of idea in 23 and 24 before we, as we kind of wrap up. He says this in 23, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. So he goes, he's going to graft them in, and who's them? It's Israel. And then he finishes this in verse 24, he says, For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? 
So Paul says, listen, if God can take you that's wild and a Gentile and foolish and he can bring you a part of the root, he goes, what's more natural? He goes, it'd be more natural that God would take the, the branches from the original tree and bring them back in. And he goes, that's what God desires to do. And he's talking about the nation of Israel and he's basically saying that one day he's going to bring Israel back and he's going to establish them back into the root, into the dough. It was good from the beginning. The problem was not the branches or, or, or the, uh, the root or the dough. He goes, the problem was the branches. The problem was that something, at some point, the dough, it, it had something get in it. And he goes, and that went bad. He goes, but God is going to bring back one day and establish his purposes through the root. And friends, you and I get to be a part of that. And so what part do we play? How, how do we even move forward? And I would say, first, I think your life matters. I think the way you live your life and faithfulness to God really makes a difference. I think in the context of where he puts you is not near as important as who he wants you to be. And I would say this, I think humility is the aim. I think that's the goal. And so let's close with this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verses 1 through 12, if you remember, he said in verse 18, don't be arrogant towards the other branches. And so if we're not going to be arrogant, or because we know that it's the root that supports us, that's who is our support, then he goes, I think Paul writes to the church of Corinth in a way that helps us, and it's practical. And so 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 12, I'm going to fly through it, and then we're going to wrap up. He says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and they passed through the sea, and they were baptized into Moses into the cloud and the sea, and they all ate the spiritual food, and they drank the same spiritual milk, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. He goes, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overflown in the wilderness. He goes, friends, if you remember the nation of Israel, in bondage in Egypt for 400 years, they were brought out, and God provided them a cloud of fire by day, and, or a, cloud, a, pillar of fire, a pillar by day and a fire by night. And he goes, and he brought them out. And he goes, and they gave them manna. And he gave them water from a rock. He goes, he gave them everything they needed. He goes, they, they still stumbled in disobedience. He goes, they were in the wilderness. He then says, now these things took place, verse six, as an example for who? Us. That we might not desire evil as they did. That we would not be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down and eat and drink and rose to play. He goes, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And the 23,000 fell in a single day, talking about what happened in Moab. He goes, it's, it's not right for us to say, oh, well, we have freedom in Christ, and then we use our freedom as a cover-up to indulge in evil. He goes, that doesn't make sense, and we can't do that. In verse 9, he says, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, as they were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, as they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, lest anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. What's the point? The point is our sufficiency, our fruitfulness comes from Christ and his body. He is the head of the body and we are his parts. He is the vine, we are the branches. And it takes all the pressure off of us. And the reason why is because I don't have to devise such a grand plan to keep this church moving forward. Why? Because Christ said that even the gates of hell won't prevail against this church or the church globally. What does that mean? He goes, it's not dependent upon you as a branch. It's dependent upon the root. So stay connected to the root. And when you do, walk humbly. Walk humbly.
Live with mercy and kindness. Talk winsomely. May your lives be an expression of joy in such a way that Gentiles and Jews alike, all the people across the world, would see your life as a city on the hill, not to be hidden, not to be covered up. And may we let our light shine in a place right now that's dark, in a dry and weary land. May we be an expression of fruitfulness because we've been grafted into the olive tree. Church, go and be. Go and be. I'm not telling you to go and do. Go and be. Go and be all that God desires you to be, and the doing will take care of itself. Will you forgive me as one of the elders of our church at times for encouraging you to go and do? Going and doing is important, but it's never important if it doesn't come from an expression of going and being. Go and be all that Christ desires, wherever it is, and then do the work that encourages attractiveness so others see the root. And friends, can I just give you this warning, this admonition? You cannot do that in your own strength, but in the strength of the one who's already given you all the strength you need. His name is Jesus, and he tells you all about himself and about God's character through his word. And you should read it daily, and you should enjoy it, and you should learn more about his character so that it changes your character. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the richness that it brings. I thank you that we have all the, the riches we need in Christ Jesus, not because of who we are in and of ourselves, but because we have been grafted into the olive tree. Thank you for your kindness and your faithfulness to us. Thank you, Lord, that we did not earn your merit or your approval, but it was by your loving kindness that you sent your son, the Christ, not to to be served, but to come and to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Wild, unpruned, unfruitful people grafted into your grand plan. And I pray that you would use it across the world for your purposes, not only for our ministry and our lives today, but ultimately so that you would bring about your purposes and end times the Jews would then be brought back in the fullness of time, and that they would be brought back in full and complete ways so that we would all enjoy our king, our prophet, our priest, our king, the true God of Israel. And I pray that until then, you would help us to be faithful and pure, consecrated and set apart for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name.